First Kings chapter 9. People ask me why I look 20 years old. I tell them it's the humor. All right. God, gold, and goofs. That's the title for this evening's message. Because, of course, God is going to be foremost. He's going to speak to Solomon in this chapter. And Solomon is going to look to expand his enterprises. And there's going to be gold involved between he and Hiram, King Hiram. And then he's going to make some goofs with that. So here we are, 13 years between chapter 8 and the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. There in chapter 8, Solomon dedicated the temple. And we're told in this chapter that it's after the temple was dedicated and Solomon's house, his palace was built, that God then comes to him this third time. Uh, That took seven years to build God's house and then about 13 years for Solomon to finish. So really 13-year gap between the two chapters. That would also mean that the prayer that Solomon offered in chapter 8, where he was praying for the people and asking God that whoever would face the temple, God would answer their prayers if they repented. Well, God is going to address that in this chapter. Again, 13 years later, God remembers the prayers, which is emblematic in Revelation when the prayers of the saints are retained by God. And uh, th- that is inspiring, I think, that whatever you pray, God is very much listening to. And we'll talk about some of those who play games with God and then come to him in prayer and how God will address that with Ezekiel and Zephaniah. Now, this third appearance here, again, comes after his palace is is also finished, 26 years earlier, he was made king. So he's been king now for 26 years. 20 years earlier, God first appeared to Solomon in a dream. This will be the second appearance in a dream because it's specified that God appears to Solomon as he did at Gibeon, and that's in chapter 3. He seems to have been a righteous king for all these years, these first 26 years of his monarchy. But the last 15, he begins to decline in his righteousness. Uh, It's, you know, there's this danger of being so familiar with things of Scripture and God for the individual that eventually you become bored with him. You have to fight that. Because what happens is you begin reading other materials about God at the exclusion of the material from God. Uh, You start craving bestsellers and other Christian books, and there's not always a problem with that. Sometimes there is, most of the time, I think. But not all, of course, not all. So the Christian has to watch out that we don't, especially pastors, if they're into, you know, studying the the word and commentaries, they've got to watch. They don't get bored. Well, I know that already. You know, familiarity breeds, breeds content, uh, uh, contempt. How do you overcome that? The zeal for the Lord and recognizing that it ain't easy 
You got to fight for it. All right. Well, verse one, and it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of Yahweh that and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that Yahweh appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Well, the second appearance is uh, the same type. It's the third time God's going to engage Solomon because he did it at the dedication of the temple also. But this is the, the, he's matching the, the style in the dream. God appeared to him and he's doing it again. You'd think that if you experienced something like this, you would not decline in your faith. But, you know, he had more temptation than most of us will ever face just because of his wealth. So in verse 1, Solomon's desires that, that the projects described, we're going to get them in verses 15 through 28, his building projects. He was expanding. Uh, Jerusalem right now is, to, well, the temple is the greatest building on earth at this point in history. Homer is just getting started in Greece. Babylon and Assyria are not yet world powers. Egypt, their glory days are behind them. Israel is the world power. This is the golden age of the kingdom, David and, and Solomon. And after this, of course, it, it crumb, begins to crumble. Uh, this vision from God in the dream is not as pleasant as the first one. In the first one, it, he asked for wisdom. God granted it and more. And at the end, God said, and by the way, you, you need to abide with me. Here, that's going to be the emphasis. God is going to say, you need to stick with me or else there are going to be some, some penalties for this. Going back to chapter 3, at Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? Well, the terms of God abiding with Solomon is Solomon and the kings abiding with him. And it is extended to other kings also. So in chapter 3, that first appearance of God in a dream at Gibeon, in chapter 6, at the building, uh, getting ready to build the temple and building the temple. Uh, of course, the theophany, as the temple is dedicated uh, here, after the dedication, and then he's going to appear to him one more time. We're not, it doesn't specify how, um, and there it's going to be rebu to rebuke him. Great lessons for us all. Verse 3. And Yahweh said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, chronology is not showing up in this section. It's just the, the historian is just giving us information. Because this reads as though God is answering him right at the dedication of the temple, when we've already established that's not so, because he dedicates the temple. Then 13 years later, he finishes his palace, and we're told here God appears to him after that palace, and that's where we get our 13-year gap. So God is now saying, 13 years later, I heard your prayer. <laughs> that's why we come to the Bible, to learn how God does business. So that when he doesn't speak to us, we can say, well, you know, it doesn't mean he didn't hear. doesn't mean he's not granting. Although Solomon knew God had approved because lightning had, God ignited the altar. We knew there was an approval. But God is revisiting this with him. 
Uh, I think this is very informative. This is why I come to the Bible. I want to know about God. Verse 4, now, if you walk before me, as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, do according to all that I have commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish, verse 5, the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. In verse 6, but if you or your sons at all turn from following me, do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. We're going to pause mid-sentence mid, uh, there before we get to verse 7, because there's just a lot here. You know, to follow God and not depart, to be raised in a Christian home and with the world you know, enticing you with so many things, and to stand your ground and still develop as an adult is... Uh, very um, honorable to look the world in the face and say, I didn't owe you anything. I owed my God before I owe you. Uh, you young Christians, I hope you're getting that because, you know, it's hard to be interested in the Bible at your age. We've got so many things happening for you. When am I going to work? Where am I, am I going to go to continue in school? And this and that. Well, whatever you do, you stick to the Lord. God expected these kings to abide with him no matter how much prosperity they enjoyed, no matter how much they had going on as kings. He expected them to abide with him. And as hard as David fell into sin, his sin was never, ever idolatry, not even close. Dave, the thought never entered David's mind to depart from Yahweh and to look at other gods. John's Gospel then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. I'll get to a quote from David in a minute. Here in verse 6, he says, But if your sons at all turn from following me. And we know the sad story. That's why we have the story. Is God is not saying, well, this is only for those who are of certain age. It's for anyone who can understand what's being said. And God is saying, you can be like the kings whom I judged, or you can be like the kings who embraced me, and I embraced them in return. Unfortunately, these conditions were not kept by the majority of Israel's rulers. The penalty included that their temple would be destroyed, that they would lose the kingdom, and they would lose their light. The lampstand, they would that light, that service to the Gentile. Well, it's the same thing God does in chapter seven, uh, Revelation one and two, where He tells the pastors that are uh, of the churches that are departing from the truth, "You better watch it. I'm going to come take your lampstand from you." Well, Israel has precedence, and many churches have have succumbed to that over the years. John's Gospel, chapter fifteen, verses four and seven, is is quite. You know, that 15th chapter is very inviting on one hand, foreboding on another. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, Jesus speaking in John 15. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is cast out as a branch... 
and is withered, and they gather them up and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, I will ask, uh, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Yeah, because you're walking with the Lord, and you're going to ask anything that's goofy. That's the, the, the primary sentiment behind that. You're in fellowship with God, in union with the Lord. And so when you say, you, Lord, can, you, can I have this job? And then at the end you, said, you say, not my will, but your will be done. And God says, okay, I'm going to do my will. So he's just answered your prayer. <laughs> it is that unity. That's simplifying a, a very simple reality. Anyway, here back to Kings chapter 9 and verse 6. <clears throat> he says, but if you go serve other gods and worship them, and that's, that's the deal breaker. And David never crossed this line, as Solomon did and many others. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David. He says, their sorrows will be multiplied, who hasten after another god. Their drink offering of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. David says, I'm not going to give them any free publicity. I'm not going to repeat the names of these gods. They don't need to be spoken by me. They will not be found on my, in my lips. He's going back all the way back to, to the days of Moses. And people, the, 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 many of the Jewish people would stampede to sin if the king wavered in his devotion. And that's what we read. We read about the king, you know, becoming a pagan, an idolater, idolater and uh, the people following. Not all of them. There's always that remnant. Well, this is true of churches. The, if the pulpit goes liberal, the people who stay, join it. Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's not leave what we know is true and trade it to go to hell. Verse 9, then I will cut off Israel. Now, this is a consequence to verse 6 if they depart. I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all people. God is no respecter of persons or temples or any other little thing that departs from him. Uh, this is magnificent, I think. Of course, before we savagely judge, pass judgment on the royal line of David, let's consider how many churches... Schools, Christian schools, how many Christian ministries, uh, missionary outreaches, paraministries, how many of them have abandoned Christ? We could write Ichabod over the edifice of many a church that still pretends to be a church, and they've locked Jesus out. And they will knock out anybody that is upholding him, or his word, from their congregation. Uh, many of these places, again, that once honored God, where Christ, where Christ is locked out, uh, that's usually very easy to see and say, okay, that's an apostate church that we wish wouldn't call itself a church anymore. But what about the ones that mingle Christ with other things? They're worse. I think what kind of creeps most of us out about snakes is more than anything is that they sneak up. I mean, their, their stealth ability is, I don't know, maybe the mosquito can outdo them. But they're just, that's why a lot of us don't, they're just there. Uh, and uh, if you could see them coming, if they were, you know, had wore a cowbell, 
We'd like them more. Uh, but uh, just, you know, that would mess up hunting, I'm sure. That's why tigers want no part of the t- cowbell on them. The shame of it, cow- tiger with a cowbell. Anyway, <laughs> trying to sneak up on the deer, clunk, clunk, clunk. <laughs> the deer would die laughing. The tiger could eat him. Anyway, God warns that he will not reward the wicked. And we need to get it in our heads and seeing churches kind of mingle things that come out of the world as though the Bible weren't enough. Is that just the very thing that is warned against in the scripture? And we're going to come to that when I quote Zephaniah, one of my favorite verses from Zephaniah. Uh, <clears throat> Israel is entitled to nothing except the judgment. But grace is offered nonetheless. Same with Christianity. And that's why God departs the temple. He's saying to them in Ezekiel chapter 10, we see the Shekinah depart the temple, and God is saying, you're not entitled to this. You have to, or to earn this, all you need to do is abide with me and not pick up any hellborn ideas. Verse 9, verse 8. As for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss. Now remember, this is God talking. And say, why has Yahweh done thus to this land and to this house? Jeremiah, when he writes the lamentation, the weeping of Jeremiah, it's because he's tried so hard to stop his people from going into idolatry. And not only did he warn them with words from their own scripture and use logic, but he exercised prophecy that was fulfilled right in front of their eyes. You would think they would look at this. See the madness of sin. Sin makes us so dumb. Humans, that is. It makes us all dumb. Lamentation 2.15. This is what uh, Jeremiah wrote out. As the city is now destroyed, the people are taken captive. He says, All who pass by clap their hands at you. Jerusalem, he's speaking to. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Well, I mentioned that Israel's uh, temple was the greatest building on earth at this time in human history. But so was Jerusalem, the greatest city at this time. Other cities had fallen by the wayside. You you know, Memphis and uh, in, in, in Egypt and other cities in Egypt, they were no longer these splendid places. Jerusalem was. So God says here to Solomon, your kings are going to mess up, your people are going to follow them, and I'm going to pass judgment, and people are going to hiss at you and say, what happened to you? I thought you were the righteous city. God was blessing you. What did what, what happened? They do this today with a church. You know, some unbelievers can't wait for a church to fail. They can't wait for the pastor to, to fail. And, oh, you know, that's why I don't go to church or something like that anyway. And unfortunately, we, we hand them We tend to hand them victories that they don't deserve. Verse 9, Then they will answer, Because they forsook Yahweh their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this calamity on them. I have read through these passages before, and there are people who were present who are no longer present 
who are no longer walking with the Lord, and you just scratch your head. Why? They, they, they read the same Bible I read. The two thieves on the cross heard the same sermon, saw the same things. God does nothing without a cause, without cause, Ezekiel 14.23. And God will not reward those who refuse to honor him. And, and why we have highly intelligent human beings that expect God to reward them for turning their back on him is ridiculous. But they do it all the time. And they get bitter and blame God. How God, I'm not gonna, he's not a loving God. How could he let this happen? Why would you expect him to bless you? when you won't even acknowledge him. You, you write forgery on his universe. You, God didn't do that. Uh, God didn't build that. Sound familiar? Jeremiah 22. And many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say, this is before the city fell, before the lamentation. This is part of Jeremiah. His whole ministry was trying to save the city. Isaiah succeeded. Well, God did through Isaiah. <clears throat> Couldn't do it with Jeremiah. Not because of Jeremiah. He's a profound prophet. And many nations will pass by this city. And everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has Yahweh done so to this great city? Then they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of Yahweh, their God, and worshipped other gods and served them. Well, Jeremiah comes along after Solomon. He had the same... (coughs) Pardon me. (coughs) He didn't have the same... Pardon me. He had the same book of kings... Uh, chapter 9, verse 9, even though there were no verse divisions, uh, verse and chapter divisions yet, he still had the text, and he knew this, and that's what Jeremiah is quoting. He's saying, this is God. God said this already, and you're making it happen. You're fulfilling the prophecy. The disobedience of the Jews became legendary, just like the hypocrisy of much of Christianity has become legendary. And then there's false Christianity. The Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism's leadership is false. All of it, all of her leadership is false Christianity, the biggest cult on the planet. And yet, within that cult, there are those that can't find their way out. Their hearts are right, but God has to do that work. That work. Anyway, that's a whole, you know, you can, people can want to debate that. You'll lose. If you, <laughs> don't bother. Just, just the grace of God. Anyway, their disobedience, as I mentioned, became legendary. And uh, the destruction of their kingdom and the dispersion of their people. And it didn't happen just once. Uh, it's, it's, and, and, and so we, you know, we look at the history of the Jewish people and we say, you know, God called it all. It's, none of this is like, ooh, what has happened to us? We don't understand. <clears throat> we'll get to something from the rabbis more there. The rabbis, rabbinical Judaism has menaced the Jewish people It's because they've departed from the scripture. And they just, you know, walk around patting each other on the back and have embraced other gods. Why? Why? Well, because the other gods let you do things that Jehovah would never let you do. You, you, can, do, you can go to work on a Sunday, on a, or a Sabbath day, a Saturday. You can go to work on Sabbath if you follow, you know, Ashtoreth of somebody and other things embraces an accurate translation of the Jewish word used here. It is a thorough word because that's what they did. They didn't tinker with other gods. They embraced them, going so far as to name their children after them. Fallen nature is drawn to false worship, to idolatry. That's part of the curse. But 
there's a solution and it's doable. It's a never-ending fight to keep many Bible-professing Christians from mixing in that which is sensational and false at the same time. It feels so good. They'll pick it up. Pastor, what do you think about this? Wanting that endorsement. It is anathema. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you got to be careful. After a while, they stop asking, and, and that's nice. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, many some folks, when they ask you for, to bless something, to endorse it, they've made up their mind. You better endorse it. They don't care about a genuine opinion. They just want you to side with them. And when you don't, they're crushed. And, uh, you know... They, they, I don't know if they ever hear me snickering as they're going away. No, I don't do that because I have to answer to God. And I am way more afraid of God than anybody else. So far, so good. Anyway, uh, when you least expect it, when you think, okay, we've got smooth seas. There's a fresh outbreak of absurdities. Advocated, defended, and embraced by people who tell you they, are, they believe in the Bible. And they advocate some stupid sin. Now they're really pretty, uh, this generation, we've got people, well, they're trying to hijack the faith by saying that these trans peoples and, and uh, blatant, uh, brazen homosexuals, militant homosexuals, that uh, they're Christians. No, they're not. They are not. You'd have to renounce your sin. Maybe you struggle with it still, but you cannot say, oh, God's good with this. The same with a thief. If a thief is out, well, I've been robbing banks you know, on the weekends. Well, the banks are closed, which means he has to break in. But anyway, uh, and he's boasting about it. Oh, but God understands. Yeah, he understands he's going to judge you. That's blatant sin. Is a sin you're not even trying to, you're, you're now embracing as acceptable. Versus the one that says, I know, I can't get this stuff together. And the, the tax collector that would, you know, smote his heart. Lord, forgive me. And you got the Pharisee strutting around like a rooster. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a live rooster loose. I have. I have. And I've already made up my mind. If they come running at me, I'm going to kick that thing so hard. I'll never run after another human being again. I've been on YouTube. I see what they do. <laughs> so barnyard animals, man. I, I, give me asphalt and concrete. Okay. <laughs> Back to this. Um, yeah, I got my driveway asphalted. And the country folks wanted me to move away. No, they did not. They did not. That's it's like, I mean, you know, no longer. They want, never mind. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Where am I? Okay, so this apostasy. Yeah, it starts off sometimes with just a curiosity. Let me just look and see what they're talking about. You better be careful. You know, Jehovah Witnesses prey on people that do that kind of stuff. Have you ever wondered why your church doesn't, and yet they go, and hmm. And because they're biblically illiterate, they take the bait. Or again, there's that permission for sin. But some, some people who profess to believe in the Bible don't even know what's in the Bible that they claim to believe, and they stop learning what they need to know because they won't look. They won't sit through verse-by-verse -verse teachings. Paul talks about those who can bear the word, put, make them servants. The ones that can't take the word, they're going to they're be a problem. Apostasy um, it is the ultimate reason for the fall of Israel. I know I'm staying on this a little bit because I've come to these three verses that I've really been looking forward to share with you. Some of you may know them. Some of you may, may be fresh to you. But either way, here's the first one, Ezekiel 14, verse 3. 
son of man, God is talking, that's how he addressed Ezekiel. Every you know, you think Ezekiel said, you know, my name is Ezekiel. <laughs> but not when God says son of man, you just take it. Anyway, these men, okay, wait. <laughs> just thinking about telling Ezekiel, don't say that. Just go ahead, take the message. Don't, don't demand you have a right to be called Ezekiel to God. Or it's my own little cartoonish world. Ezekiel 14, verse 3, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of, inquired of at all by them? Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? God says, see what these guys are doing? They're playing games. They're serving these fake gods, not me, in their hearts. This is deep. They've embraced this. And then they want to pray to me too. Now, do you think I should answer these kind of people? He continues, therefore, speak to them, God said. Say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart. And puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity. And then comes to the prophet. I, Yahweh, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. This is incredible. First, the grace. The idol in the heart. I'm one that I don't believe Solomon really embraced the idols. I think he, he, uh, he was wrong. But don't misunderstand me. We'll come to that in chapter 11. I'm not looking forward to it. But here, God says... When they come to, when these people come to you, come to the pastor, I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to answer the door when they ring the bell. That's pretty serious stuff. So here, Ezekiel has his audience. He's always had an audience. They'd come to listen to them, and he, boy, sometimes he would just get them because they were guilty. And they're here before him, and he, God says to the prophet, these people, they're playing games with me. Do you think I should answer their prayers? I'm going to answer their prayers, but I'm going to answer them according to their false beliefs. I'm going to judge them. My wrath will be on them. That's the answer. Zephaniah. Zephaniah says, here he is preaching. He says, those who worship the stars of heaven, the host of heaven, the spiritual beings, the astronomy, uh, uh, astrology, not astronomy. Astronomy is fine uh, with mustard. But, no, that's pastrami. Anyhow. I don't know. I just feel good tonight. I don't know. It was that third cup of coffee. I'm sure. I'm a little giddy here. That's why I look 20. Anyway, <laughs> those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by Yahweh, but who also swear by Milcom. God is saying, who are you fooling? You can't have it both ways. You can't put a statue of St. Joseph on your dashboard and then expect to go come to, 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 to the Christ of the Bible and, and that be excused, although some do it out of ignorance and God, that's his issue. But the ones that know better, God is saying, I'm, what's wrong with you? Ezekiel 13, verse 17, Likewise, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own heart. Prophesy against them. So you had the women here. They were selling. They opened these little shops up, and they were selling trinkets, and they would sell curses on people. They would hunt the people, God said to Ezekiel. They're hunting the people's souls, uh, male and female alike. 
are guilty, or can be guilty, of these things. Verse 10, now it happened at the end of 20 years that Solomon had built the house, uh, had built the two houses, the house of Yahweh and the king's house. We pause there for a moment. See, the chronology is just all over the place, and so we're not trying to figure out when he's doing this and that too much. Verse 11, Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold. As much as he desired that King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Well, this is, this is where it starts. This is the gold. And then we're going to get to the goofs concerning the gold. This partnership between King Solomon and King Hiram, uh, evidently, it, it was mutually rewarding to them. They liked the arrangement. A lot of the details are left out, and we are glad. We don't want to have a, a, a business contract before us in the Bible laid out. So we have to kind of fill in some of the blanks. Anyway, uh, these two sought to further their interests mutually, and they entered into this joint venture, these joint ventures, these enterprises. Solomon, as it says, uh, uh, King Solomon uh, then gave Hiram 20, uh, back up a little bit more, I'm on verse 11, the gold, as much as he desired. Well, Solomon is going to abandon simplicity for enterprise. The supplies that he's getting, the cedar, the cypress, the gold, they're not gifts. It's part of their business arrangement. What King Solomon desired was four and a half tons of gold. This is to build his palace. The temple had much gold, but it was Korban. It was dedicated to the temple, and you couldn't use it in his, his house. So as collateral, he gives to Hiram these 20 cities. He says, I'll give you these cities. You can, the, the, the yield of the produce is yours. You can tax the people. You can just get your money back from this investment. Well, of course, Hiram's going to go look at this city and find out what kind of friend Solomon is. This is why you have lawyers, because it deals like this. So he had, for the temple, over 3,750 tons of gold. Well, he used up a lot of it. Remember, we covered the temple. The walls were all inside. It was gold and just everywhere. But whatever was left over, according to First Chronicles, uh, that was for the temple. And so he needed, he, he wanted to, a loan from Hiram, which he gets. And um, he's got these other projects, not just his temple, as was going to be itemized. So he, these, these 10 cities that he gives him, or however many, where were 20 cities that he gives him, uh, you know, they're really Solomon trying to pull a fast one. He's a cheapskate. And I do think cheapskates go, there's a blindness that goes with it. My, I had a lawyer, family lawyer years ago told me, he says, you know what, we, we, we had to go to court for something, and afterward we go to get something to eat, and he says, I gotta, he had to get this off his chest. He said, I got a customer who just sold his house. He took all the light bulbs out. And the new family goes in and says, we have no light bulbs. I must have, he said, and there were a lot of them. You know, it was a law, you'd have to put a ceiling, each room had to have a ceiling light, and this was for people who couldn't afford lamps. Anyway, he said, I called that guy, he said, get back to that house and you put those. What was wrong with that guy? Couldn't he see how stingy he would look? 
You know, I got a light bulb. Like Uncle Fester or something. Anyway, uh, I've just, some stingy people, they just get so into the, the deal, the saving, they trip over a dollar reaching for a penny. And anyway, this is what Solomon was doing. And, uh, you know, it, it's just not good. This um, giving of the land, he had no right to do that. This is God's land. The, the, the Feast of Jubilee that would come every 50 years was to ensure that the land remained with the original owners, going back to the, the decrees of, Solomon, of, of Joshua and the priests and, and the leaders. And, and that, I, you know, in this life, I believe that you can fall away from the faith, else there'd be no need to warn so many times we come across it in the New Testament. If you want to opt out, that's your prerogative. But no one's going to snatch you out of God's hands. Uh, you will be with God as long as you want to be with God. However... I believe when, when we die in Christ, there is nothing that can upset that relationship. That's eternal. That's eternal salvation. And I believe the Jubilee is a, sort of a type of this that says, you know, f- within that time frame, the land can move around. But once that feast comes, it is locked in. It turn, goes back, and, and you, can't, you can't upset that. So uh, the tribal inheritances were permanent. Ultimately, permanent. Uh, now, verse 12. I hope I communicated that okay. I'll, I'll know later when I'm driving home thinking about how I said it. Anyhow, very seldom do I say, man, I, got, I nailed that one. In fact, I don't know that I've ever done that. But I sure have said, man, why did I say it like that? Oh, they're smart. They'll figure it out. Verse, verse 12. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you've given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Cabal, as they are to this day. Verse 14, then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. Now, it reads as though he, he know, boy, this land is terrible. Let me give you one. <laughs> That, that it's all connected. Uh, this is the goal that he, he, he borrowed. What is not told to us that he does give the land back to Solomon, and Solomon has to pay this land off. So before I get to that, Hiram hoped to receive a rich, fertile land that could produce grain that he could sell and he could, or he could tax, and he would make his money. Instead, he gets this barren land filled with hills and Things like that. So he doesn't like the cities. That Hebrew word, Kabbal, translators are not sure what it means, but they are sure that it sounds like another Hebrew word, which means that it's nothing. Well, it sounds like it's nothing in English. I mean, somebody said, I bought a 1999 Kabbal. It's like, man, it's junk. It's like a, what's that, uh, Yugo. I don't know if you remember that car. What appropriately named? You bought the Yugo. Didn't you see that coming? Or the, or the Gremlin? I mean, there's a bunch of them. What was the one where you tink on the rear end and it explode? Wasn't that the Gremlin? Okay. Anyway, back to this. So the collateral was beneath the investment, and King Hiram was no dummy, and uh, King Solomon was busted. He's a cheapskate. 
and, and he called him out on it. And he says, my brother, he's appealing to a part of Solomon that's not there. You would think, you would think that if you show kindness to somebody, that they would show kindness back because that's what you would do. And you can be surprised sometimes if the other people, the other side doesn't do it that way. Anyway, it is right to look a gift horse in the, house, in the mouth, in the house, in the mouth. If someone wants to give you some beastly animal that can drop dead on your porch, I think you have a right to look in his mouth before you say, I'll take him. <laughs> because, you know, somebody can just give you something that you're, you're saddled, you're burdened with. Anyway, uh, you know, what if they gave you a lot of barren land? And, boy, a guy gave me 100 acres of swamp. And i got to pay taxes on it now. Well, you should have looked a gift horse in the mouth before accepting it. Anyway, the question is, when the Queen of Sheba came, and we'll get that next chapter, she gives the same amount, 120 talents of gold to the king, which makes you wonder, did Solomon pay off the loan with that? First uh, Kings 10.10, 10. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. Uh, there never again came such an abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Uh, I will add that Hiram, there is a possibility that uh, Hiram had to pay tribute to Solomon because Solomon's kingdom went all the way to the Euphrates, and we'll be coming to that soon. All right, so a lot of questions, and I think kind of exciting questions, but we do know he was a cheapskate because he pulled a rotten deal. Uh, man, Solomon, yeah, what's wrong with that guy? Well, he's filthy rich, independently wealthy. He's Daffy Duck of the Hebrew kings. Verse, nine, verse 15, And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of Yahweh, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. So these are his projects that I mentioned. This is why he had a desire for the cedar, the cypress, and the gold. He had to fund these projects. The Milo means, or the mellow, uh, means to fill. And it's, it's likely, archaeologists, the consensus amongst them is that there were these terraced earthworks that could have been uh, multi-purpose fortifications, uh, and, of course, uh, reinforcing <clears throat> foundations and things like that. Uh, retaining walls, that's the word I wanted. Verse 16, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up to take Gezer and burned it with fire and killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. Great, you're a Canaanite. God's people were supposed to purge you from the land. They never did. So the Egyptian comes, and he's going to pur he purges them, and he takes this land, and he gives it, because it's valuable land. It's in trade routes. It's a, it's a good piece of property. And he gives this as a wedding gift to, to Solomon. And so it's, got, again, randomly placed. Not uh, The chronology is, is out, way out of order. You, you read this, you say, well, Ephraim was supposed to cast these people out. That was their law, or their commandment from God. And they, they may have conquered their cities, but they didn't keep them. And this would be like an unbeliever doing the work of a church. Like an unbeliever doing what we should be doing. 
Maybe as an individual Christian, you have come across people in the worst workplace that are nicer than some other Christian in the workplace. Uh, you know, I've, I've come across this, Christians that are either l- lunatics or just mean, and nice ones too. And you, you want to say, man, what, what is your problem? But they won't let you. They'll bite at you. Who are you to judge me? I let, them, I let the air out of the bottom part of your tires. Maybe here's a lesson for you. Anyway, uh, I think that's one thing I get out of that. Here we have an unbeliever doing what the believer should have done, and, and that is a, a, a rebuke. Verse 17, And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth Horon, Baalath, Tadmar, in the wilderness, <clears throat> in the land of Judah. All the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. And that's that dominion that reached to the Euphrates that God said would be under the, the control of the kings. They would lose almost, well, they would lose it all. Um, this um, Tadmar, it's an ancient, important city north in Syria, uh, a vital caravan route. And the historians knew it as the bride of the desert. So he's, this is a lot of wealth coming into the kingdom for Solomon. It just takes time to pay back Hiram, whom Hiram's got his number now. Hiram's going to enter more deals with, in, into more deals with Solomon. Yeah, he's, he's a penny pincher, but I make a lot of money with him. So this kind of stuff happens to this day, does it not? Uh, yeah, my partner is kind of creepy like that, but you know, the business is doing great. So uh, these outposts that he has, well, they're to defend his treaties. I mean, your treaty is just on paper. You need military to back it up. And so he puts these outposts there. When I was in Israel, I saw the the, the, the ruins, the remains of many of these uh, cavalry stalls and these grain areas where they kept grain all from Solomon's day. And it just didn't, you know, it's like, can we go to somewhere where Jesus walked? A kind of a attitude. Because I, 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 Solomon, I don't dislike him, but he just annoys me more than anything. Maybe because I'm afraid I might be like, I mean, if he can mess up, what about me? Well, I don't have his billions, so I might be pretty good. Anyway, First uh, Kings 10.26, And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 4,000 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. Well, he, he got those things, that, uh, and he had to maintain them, but that was part of his building plan and why he needed the money up front. Verse 20, All the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Pezzarites, Hivites, Jebusites, and who were not of the children of Israel, verse 21, <clears throat> That is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely from these, Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. Well, you know, they just got tired of the killing, and and it ran cold. They, they, They missed the window, because if they could enslave them, they certainly could have just purged them. But um, they they weren't savages, uh, usually. The Jews never really lost sight of their failure to purge these people from the land. It was in their law, in their constitution. They could pretend, and sometimes they did. 
Solomon enslaved the Canaanite peoples, but not the Jewish people. In this country, we have the 13th Amendment. You know, a, law, a, a judge cannot make you go to work. He can, he, can, he can put some pressure on you to do it. You know, there are work release programs, other things. But he, uh, he cannot make you go work for a company. That would be enslavement. Uh, if a normal citizen, I mean, there are some twists and turns there. Verse 22, but of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers because they were men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. Not cavalry, but cavalry. Um, uh, Horse soldiers, verse 23. Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. Well, if you are a high school student, junior high school student, you should be familiar with how monarchs work. And these sections of scripture are telling you what goes in, what's involved in having a kingdom. As you get older, this begins to come. If you go to college, it just come, becomes under economics, uh, one of the places it falls under, which economics can be boring if you don't see how it, it, it affects you directly. And you'll begin to learn that when you start paying bills. Uh, in this age, how, how many of us are getting a rude awakening about supply chains? Because we've, we're export, importing so much stuff. You, you know, we're saying with our oil, for example, I'm not going political, uh, but it's just a fact. The philosophy has been for a long time in America, why use up our oil? We'll just import it. When things get nasty, then we'll have reserves. Well, the problem is you get nitwit politicians who don't know when it's time to activate the reserves. Uh, so, I know you came here to hear that tonight. Anyway, it's all meaningful, is my point. And as a, a young individual, listen, if you want the Bible to be exciting as a young teen, get a good Bible dictionary and encyclopedia and, when, and, and come across some of these verses and look it up and you'll find things open up for you. And maybe one day you could be like me, 20 years old and looking. Anyway. <laughs> Verse 24, but Solomon's daughter came up with the, uh, from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Again, chronolo chronology lost. This is the harem. That building was not just for her. The women, you know, and, and this is how it is in, in many Arab countries to this day. They're just in their world, and they accept that. This is our world. That's the men. Sometimes they come together. Then they go back to being whatever they're doing, and we come back to our world. I'm talking about the wealthy ones, the palace ones, and they enjoy uh, the, 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 whatever it is that they're, they're given. I'm, I'm not applauding it at all. I, I am saying that it's sort of a, a, a subculture. It's a culture within a culture. And uh, uh, when he had that many wives, they couldn't marry anybody else. What would you know, man down the, at the grocery store? Hey, I married one of the king's wives. That, that wouldn't go over well. Verse 25, Now three times a year Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for Yahweh. And he burned incense with them on the altar that was before Yahweh, so he finished the temple. Yeah, next chapter we find out he also started doing this for other places. These three pilgrim 
pilgrimage feast for men. <clears throat> the Pentecost, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Men over 20, under uh, 60, they were required to go there. Manhood began for, for the Jews at the age 20. The bar mitzvahs, that's a product of the rabbis. The rabbi, you know, their writings and the missions, and they, 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 fought, they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. But why didn't they go to their scripture? Why don't the Jews today just look at what the Bible says, their Bible? Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, From 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Exodus thirty fourteen. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to Yahweh. Now, this 20 years old is really like 19 and 8 months or something because they had a 360-day calendar, not a 365-day calendar. Um, not really that much of a difference. When I said it's likely at age 60, which would be like 59, 8 months or something like that, uh, they were exempt from these mandatory uh, ex- feast. Leviticus 27.3, your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, unless he looks like he's 20. Verse 26, I know you think I should have picked a more reasonable number, like 45 or something. Why skimp? Verse 26, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, where, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Well, the translators should not translate that word Red Sea, Red Sea, because it's not. It's Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds. The difference is, if you look at a map of the Red Sea, you see it has two rabbit ears. One goes west and one goes east. And if uh, the one to the east, that's, that's Ezion Geber, Yam Suf, where the reeds are. And that has something to do with Israel's crossing into the promise. I mean, these things, they, they have a meaning. And so, unfortunately, it is part of the Red Sea, but it's really more specific, the, the, the Sea of Reeds up in that portion where he puts his ships. Um, that's what it was known for. It certainly had water deep enough for ships, but it also had these reeds up there. Uh, I don't know why it doesn't read that way. Verse 27, then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen, who knew the sea. Well, I knew a sailor that went to CCC, and all he could see was the bottom of the deep blue CCC. Uh, uh, seamen who knew the sea, that's what they usually do. Imagine a seaman that knew the forest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> work with the service. <laughs> Did it to myself. <laughs> no, no. All right. Let's get it together. Laughter does the heart merry, right? Like good medicine. Even bad jokes sometimes can do the heart merry because you're glad to get out of there. Which is, uh, where are we? Okay. Who knows? <laughs> I'm trying so hard to not laugh. (laughs) Okay, to work with the servants of Solomon. Verse 28. Let's get away from this. They went to Ophir. uh, Ophir. 
and acquired 400 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. We don't know where Ophir was. It's probably good because everybody, it would be like the gold rush of 49, 1849. Some of you may have been there. Anyway, (laughs) that's how you you win friends and influence people. This, uh, the Sidonians, they were known for the transport of lumber and they were also seafaring people. Uh, They were also known as the Phoenicians. This 420 talents of gold, that's about 16 tons of gold. Uh, But let's go back to, let's close it with this. The outside world, as I mentioned, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, they were not yet world powers. They were weak at this time, as a matter of fact, which makes Isaiah's prophecy when uh, King Hezekiah brought the Babylonian uh, emissaries in and said, oh, look what we have. And Isaiah comes in, what would you show him? I showed him everything, you nitwit. And now they're going to take it. And Hezekiah, you know, he says, well, will it be while I'm alive? (laughs) No, you'll be fine. Okay, good, fine. Uh, and that's really what happens. Anyway, the Babylon, Babylonians were not a world power then, but they went back to Babylon, and it, they put it on record. There's gold in that year city, and eventually the Babylonians will, will come. Loose lips sinks ships. That's one of the lessons from that story. You just can't tell everybody everything. Keep your cards close to your chest. Anyway, uh, coming back to this, um, the, as I mentioned earlier, this is the, at this time in history with Solomon and Hiram, Homer is just getting started in, in Greece. That's going to really influence uh, the, the Greek uh, wisdom and the knowledge that comes out of Greece and will give us our New Testament language. This is big news. So God is doing stuff in other parts of the world that he's using later, like chess pieces. He, he's going to use them later and... Uh, the, the Greek language, it's a rich language. We study it so much. Um, it, it, we have every Bible on earth, every New Testament comes from the Greek except the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, that just comes from lost souls in darkness. They have no Greek scholars. They just arbitrarily uh, edit the Bible, and I wouldn't want to be them on Judgment Day. Going back to this, um, godly men are... and. Ungodly men alike can be financially profitable, but they cannot be spiritually profitable without adhering to God. And that's one of the things. We've talked about the goofs of Solomon, what he did with Hiram, and uh, leaving the simplicity of the faith because he wanted enterprise, and it did not pay off. With wealth comes unique distractions and temptations, and I wish God would let me prove that to you. But... (laughs) Uh, But anyway, wealth opens doors that we likely would be better off uh, without. So I close with this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6. For the love of money, not the money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What a lesson. We're seeing it happen in the life of Solomon. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for, again, we're just so grateful. You you've have these lessons for us, and all of them have something that is very beneficial to us. We thank you. May you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name we ask you, amen.